Hebrews chapter number 13. We have uh, been in this book now just a little bit over a year. And next Sunday we'll mark our final time in the book of Hebrews. Let's go ahead and stand please in verses 18 through 21. Are our passage this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse number 18. Pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And let's pray. Father, I pray for your help this morning. I pray, first of all, that to whatever extent is necessary in our individual lives, that we would recognize not simply the value, but the necessity of praying. And then, Father, I pray that our prayers would come forth abundantly, Because we recognize the glorious privilege that we have to come to you. And so help us please in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may of course be seated. Well, we talked about this when we came into the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews that it almost appears to not really fit to what's going on in the remainder of the book. And, of course, we know that's not true. The, the, the task before us is to understand how it fits, not to raise a question about whether or not it fits. And what the last chapter, what to us is the last chapter, of course, the, the, the book wasn't originally written in chapters, But to this is the last chapter are, as we have here, some concluding comments, but also some very practical things to do in light of the message that has been preached. It's really kind of interesting, folks, and we'll talk about this again in Titus as we talked about it in the evening services in Timothy that to God, right, and I realize that I'm a pastor and therefore to some extent I'm a theologian and I understand that, but 
when God talks to us about doctrinal matters, as he has done extensively in the book of Hebrews, taking us back through the Old Testament, comparing the work of Christ to the work of the priests, that his goal is not simply to fill our minds with theology, but actually to generate the right kind of conduct. And the right kind of conduct that God has in mind the vast majority of time for the vast majority of his people is really stuff that at first glance is just very normal and routine. Right? All of this doctrine, all of this work of the work of Christ and all of the Old Testament and the priesthood and the way that it compares to Melchizedek, what do you want me to do with it? Be faithful to the Lord. Be good to God's people. Be the right kind of employee. Be the right kind of husband. Be the right kind of wife. Be the right kind of child. So that it's not about creating a church filled with people who have some recognition of Greek and Latin and theological expressions, but people who know how to live, how to truly live for the Lord in a very dark and sinful world. And so we've seen, in, even in this book, in verses 1 through 6, that we're to be rightly oriented to the Lord in our conduct and rightly oriented to the Lord's people. We are to have a very clear New Testament orientation, which is quite honestly much simpler for us with a couple of thousand years of church history and New Testament Christianity and being Gentiles than it did for these people who were Hebrews by ethnicity and Old Testament in their orientation, but to practice Christianity from a New Testament perspective. To recognize that Christianity and Christ are unpopular and not to deliberately go out of our way to be unpopular, but to embrace the unpopularity of the cross of Christ. That our Savior was a criminal and he died as a criminal. And he wasn't pretending to be a criminal. God treated him like a criminal and executed him for his sins, which he bore for our sake. But because we are New Testament people offering up acceptable New Testament sacrifices, we are still worshipers. As we saw last week, thinking rightly about the spiritual leaders that God gives us. And I think that bleeds over into the passage this morning. In which is verses 18 through 21 the pastor talks to the congregation about praying. Not, again, not an academic kind of conversation about praying. But a very heartfelt conversation about praying. He wants them to pray from a New Testament perspective. If you look at verse number 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, and we'll come back to this, I'll talk more a little bit about that, what, how he's phrasing that, but just notice his emphasis. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, 
that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And then ahead into verse number 21. Make you perfect in every good work to do His will. Whose will? The will of Jesus Christ. Working in you that which is... Well, I'm sorry, the Father. Working that which in you which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. A complete New Testament orientation to the subject matter of prayer. And again, this is, this is pretty straightforward for us because... Although we are very familiar with the law of Moses in the Old Testament, we never lived as Old Covenant people. Even when you and I talk about the law and being under the law, there's no chance that you and I were ever under the law the way that the Israelites were under the law. Unless you are genuinely Hebrew in ethnicity. just was not anything that Gentiles ever truly knew the way a Jew would know. And so as Old Testament people, their orientation to God was to go through a human priest, a descendant of Aaron. And although there is no record that they had to bring their prayers to Aaron, their entire religious life was oriented to whoever their high priest was a descendant of Aaron. Their access to God was through that entire Levitical system. But we are New Testament people, and when we pray, folks, we don't go through Aaron. And that was the whole point of what the pastor talked to them about with Melchizedek, was that Jesus was a priest but not like Aaron was a priest. And Jesus had no connection to Aaron in his body. He was completely outside of that system. And he is our mediator, the mediator of a new covenant shed through his blood, an everlasting covenant through his blood. And the pastor has already referred to this, and we know this, seeing then Hebrews 4.14, that we have a great high priest, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is an open door for us folks as New Testament people into the presence and access of God that was unknown by Old Testament people. What a great privilege is extended to us. Now, I I realize that as human beings, we tend to struggle in the area of prayer. On the one hand, right, I mean, if, 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 I, if I passed out a little piece of paper with some Christian activities on it, prayer would be near the top of everybody's list. Is it important? Yes. It, how does it work in our practice? Well, the reality is that in our practice, it often gets pushed to the bottom of the list, doesn't it? But that doesn't alter the fact that the Bible is presenting us 
with this wonderful teaching that because of the work of Christ, there is for us an open door in which we may come boldly, not rudely, but which we may come openly and with confidence and with the knowledge that God knows everything there is to know already and we have still been accepted because of the work of Christ. We come and ask for grace and mercy. When the pastor then, in verse number 18, is asking of them for their prayers, you can be sure, folks, that he is thinking of it in those terms of the people who have been invited. I mean, this is what the Lord would say to us. Come to me. Come boldly. Hold nothing back. I know, I mean, if we, I'm not going to go back and re-preach it, folks, but if you just look at the run-up to it, the, the point that God is making is that he already knows what you need and he already knows what is wrong and he already knows where our weaknesses are and he already knows everything there is to know about us right down to the very innermost part and still come and ask. It must be rather grievous to him if his people will not do that. when he has with great price obtained that open door for us. In verses 18 and 19 then, we have the pastor's prayer request of the congregation. Pray for us. For we trust that we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly, but I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, just a couple of things there, folks, and I'm just going to mention this. You probably have noticed it. We're not going to spend a lot of time walking through why it is, but you'll notice that in verse number 18, you have plural pronouns, and in verse number 19, they are singular. Pray for us. And as you can imagine, any time you have something like that, outcome depends on the paper and the ink, and we start writing explanations. And the truth is that we don't really know everything, so I'm just going to kind of want to get to it, talk to you as I think he's making the point, and we will go on. There's also some question and conversation about why verse 18 is worded the way that it is. Pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. In other words, folks, if I were to say that to you, right, let's move away from Hebrews 13, 18 for a minute. If I was to say to you, pray for us, pray for me. I trust I have a good conscience. I desire to live honestly. There's some question as to whether there is some tension between the pastor and the congregation that he would talk to them this way. I don't think that's what it is. And I don't want to get too far ahead because I'm going to bring it back up next week. But I would just make this observation, folks. 
the sermon that has occupied Hebrews 1 through 12. Make no mistake about this, folks. This is a hard sermon. And I don't mean that it's hard intellectually going back through and putting all the pieces of the Old Testament together. I mean it is a hard sermon. It is a sermon that runs along this track. When Christ died, he bought eternal salvation. If you have that salvation, you will practice it faithfully throughout the course of your life. And if you don't, if you walk away from it, I'm not talking about a backsliding moment, but if you walk away from that, you walk away from that profession, and you go back to the old lifestyle, the indication is that your profession was never genuine, but was fake. That's a hard sermon, folks. That's a hard sermon. It is just part of the pastoral task that periodically they come to the pulpit and they say hard things to people. Or they say hard things about things that people are doing or that they hold dear or that they believe strongly. So my my understanding would be that the pastor is asking prayer for these people in part because he wants them to understand that He is not on a crusade against them. Pray for us. We have a good conscience about this. We're we're trying to present to you the word of the Lord faithfully. We're going to deal with this, folks, in in Sunday school the next however many weeks as we just go back and recover some things. The Bible says some things about men and women that don't go down well even in conservative churches in America in the 21st century. Pray for us. We we trust we have a good conscience. We trust that we're just telling you what the Lord said and what the Lord intends. And then he goes on beyond that. Pray for us. We are, we are confident that we are leading you. I think there's a sense in which it's tied to verse number 17, right? Pray for us, those who are your spiritual leaders. That we may lead you with a good conscience. That we are desiring to live the life that we preach. So I think there's a very clear connection between verse 17 and 18. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself. We've talked about that. They watch for your souls as they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Pray for us. Pray for us. This is a reflection of the right kind of biblical leadership. Not dictatorial, not self-serving not as Paul said, having dominion over your faith, but helpers of your joy to tell you what God said, unpopular though it might be, as unpalatable at times as it might be.
So pray for us. And then in verse number 19, the prayer request turns. All right, so I just think verse number 18 is kind of a generic on the basis of verse number 17. Whoever those are at whatever point in your life, however many there be at any particular moment in time, who are wielding spiritual leadership over you because that is what God has for them and you, pray for them. Pray for them. I think that it is very much tied to that idea of obedience. Remember verse 17. The obey there has the idea of being persuaded by. Be persuaded that we are looking out for your best interests. Pray for us. We trust we have a good conscience. We want to live that which we teach and that which we proclaim. And then a personal request. Verse number 19. But I beseech you the rather, to a greater degree, I urge you to pray for us because we're trying to lead you in line with the word of the Lord. And really make this a matter of prayer, would you please? That I would be delivered to you more quickly. Again, folks, without going down and walking through and once again trying to figure out who the human author of Hebrews is, one thing is very clear from the text. They knew who was writing them this sermon. They knew. We don't know, but they did. And we have no idea why he wants to be restored But if we just look across the page to verse number 23, we do know this about Timothy. That Timothy had been in jail. Did you know that? Did you know Timothy had gone to jail? You know, folks, Paul wasn't the only believer to go to jail. Know that Brother Liberty, that Brother Timothy is set at liberty. He's out of jail. And of course, this is one of the reasons that we argue that Paul's the pastor, but again, on the basis of Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, I don't think so. There were other people that were put in jail. This is probably the reason, folks, really simply, this is probably the thing that drove Demas to depart from Paul. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He looked around, the Roman government was rounding up believers, especially the pastors, They were putting him in jail, and Demas said, I think it's time for me to go home. I signed up to serve the Lord, but I didn't sign up to serve in prison. He's gone. Again, folks, without going back and looking at this and trying to bog through the academia of why we have this grammatical structure and whether there's a tension and who the author is, Can we understand that verses 18 and 19 are asking two things of you, the congregation? They're asking for you to pray for those that have spiritual authority over you, that they would indeed preach the word of God faithfully. Pray for us. We trust we have a good conscience. We desire to live honestly. We who do this are not perfect. We do not know everything. We do not, I was just 
I've had been having a kind of an ongoing conversation with one of the guys about a sermon that he heard a very prominent man preach. And he went, what? And he gave it to me. And I went, what? And I sent it to one of my pastor friends. He went, what? We don't know everything. You're not idiots. I hope I'm not an idiot. Not every sermon is a home run. But, right? We trust that we have a good conscience. We trust that we're trying to do what the Lord would have done. Pray for us to that end. Pray for me, whomever that would be. And pray for things that are specific that you know about. Not everybody's individual situation is always the same. Not, not every pastor needed to be restored. Not every pastor went to jail. Not every pastor has a particular illness or a malady. Not every pastor struggles financially. Not every pastor struggles in the same area. But when you know, pray. Right? Verses 18 and 19 are preoccupied with the pastor's instruction to the congregation about how to pray. Pray. Pray for us. Pray for us. And then in verses 20th and 21, you have the pastor's prayer for the congregation. The pastor's prayer for the congregation. Now the God of peace. And anytime you read that kind of a sentence, folks, and there are numbers of them, I'm just going to walk through them very quickly. Right? When you, when you read that kind of construction, that grammar, the God of peace, the, the idea is that God is the source. Where is all peace ultimately found? God. Romans 15.5, he is called the God of consolation and patience and endurance. Where does, the, where does the ability to endure Christian living come from? God, not us. Romans 15.13, he is the God of hope. Where does hope come from? God, not us. He's the source of hope. 1 Corinthians 1.3, he is the God of all comfort, consolation. Where does real encouragement come from? God, not us. 2 Corinthians 13.11, he's the God of of love and peace. God is love. Where does all love come from? God. So you get the idea, folks. When you read that kind of a, the God of, right? He is the source. He is He is the fountainhead. Not that he doesn't use other people. Not that we don't encourage each other and help each other. But God is the ultimate source of that. And it just seems that in this case, in this letter, because persecution is such a major part of the letter, that he reminds them that God is the God, the source of peace. Peace that is purchased, by the way, by the blood of Christ. So, so verse number 20, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. That's a really fascinating construction, and Hebrews has a lot of them because the human being that God used to write this book is, is somebody who is like a Shakespeare of his language. Now, the God of peace that launched Jesus is really the idea, the way the word is used in the Gospels to describe the launching of a boat. Not, not like a rocket, although it could be like a rocket, but, but who, who used his great power. He's not just the God of peace. He is the God of power. He launched Jesus from the grave to the right hand of the Father. 
And Jesus then is the great shepherd of the sheep. And again, folks, we want to make sure that we keep the context of the book in mind. People are being persecuted. The government is out to get them. The conversation that they're having is perhaps we should scatter, stop meeting, get away from this. What is the message of the book? Can't do that. Can't do that. That's just going to raise the question, well, does God have any idea what he's asking? Yes, he does. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he is asking. And he did this through the blood of his son. And again, folks, we want to read that within its proper framework. And this is always true. What greater indication could God give you of his good intentions towards you than to give his son for you. I mean, what else would we ask? I mean, seriously, I'm not trying to be unkind to us, but we tend to ask a lot of things. But when God talks to us, he he always kind of approaches it from the same perspective. How How could you question whether or not I'm looking out for you? I gave my son for you. And this is the way the pastor is presenting. Now, again, he's, he really, he's just talking to them at this point in verse number 20. He's grounding them in the theology of his prayer for them. The God of peace, the source of peace that launched our Savior from the grave, escorted him into the glories of heaven. Jesus, who is the great shepherd of your soul, Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. This is how the pastor prays for the people. Here's the request. May the God of peace and power, who is shepherding his flock, who demonstrates his love for you by giving his son for you, may he make you perfect. May he make you perfect. That same expression is used in the Gospels when Jesus found James and John. They were sitting on the ground mending their nets, fixing the holes, making them right. This is what the Lord is doing in us. He is repairing us. He has, in one sense, folks, saved us completely, totally, positionally. We are glorified. Romans chapter 8, it is all a done deal. On a practical standpoint, God is working on us on a regular basis, is he not? I mean, right? Wednesday night, Brother Derek Thomas was here, right? Did a great job, brought us up to date on the Ukraine. What a fascinating perspective on how God is using that war. So when he begins, right, so when he begins to speak and he talks, right, he goes to 2 Thessalonians, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course, right? Did we not go, you know, I need to pray more. What's the Lord doing? Mending his nets. And then, right, then we'll hear a sermon on love or we'll read a verse on love and go, you know what, I just need to love more. What's the Lord doing? This is the way it works. And we'll hear a sermon on faithfulness. We go, I, just, I need to be more faithful. And we'll hear one on money. I need, to be, I need to be more faithful in my giving. What is the Lord doing? Mending his nets. This is how he prayed. Make you... Perfect, working on the weak spots, repairing the broken spot, fixing the flaws. This is the work of the Lord. 
And he's doing that, verse number 21. Right? So that we might do his will. And again, if you go back to the illustration in the Gospels of James and John mending their nets. Why are they mending their nets? Well, those guys of you that fish and have used fishing nets, as we do in Canada, know full well that a hole in the net is not conducive to keeping the fish in the net. So the Lord is working so that we might be effective doers of His will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. This is the relationship. God is doing in me what is good to Him. I think we all understand, folks, that God does things that we do not think are good. That we would like to talk about and we would like to encourage God to have a different mentality about it. And I think that all you need to do is begin to read through the book of Job and you have a whole book devoted to that. I don't think God is treating me fairly. But again, the great shepherd of the sheep is working in us so that we will do that which is what his will is and he is doing then what is pleasing to him. And he's doing all this through Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. So the pastor, right? I mean, you'll indulge pastors because this just tends to be how they think, right? All that, all that theology surrounding the prayer request make you perfect. Right? So the pastor says, pray for us. Pray for, pray for those that are your spiritual leaders. We think we have a good conscience. We want to do what is right. Pray for us that that's that's what's happening. And then if you know something specific, pray. And then we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray that the Lord would make you perfect. That the Lord would be working to, to bring you to complete maturity. That he would do this through the work of Christ because he is the great shepherd. All of which, folks... If I can just close, and I don't really want to close this on a little bit of a negative note. Our our prayers really need to go beyond bless them. Bless them. Our prayers should probably involve a little more detail and meat. There's a place to ask God to bless people. There's a place to ask the Lord to lead, guide, and direct but, but there is a place to ask the Lord for specific things. And it is appropriate that we pray for each other for the things that God has for us that will work to our spiritual maturity and completion because he is the shepherd of our soul. and He has given to us his son. So pray for me and I appreciate the fact that you do and... and <clears throat> I pray for you, and no doubt we will endeavor to pray more for each other. Pray for each other. Let's pray. Father, I pray that...